1: nil zacharias and you're listening to eat for the planet on this show we try to answer the question how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet the show features conversations with food industry leaders health and sustainability experts as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food if you're familiar with the world of animal advocacy there's a good chance that you have heard of josh balk Josh has been fighting to get better treatment for farm animals and factory farms for over a decade, and he has gone from working as an intern at the Humane Society of the United States to now serving as their Vice President of Farm Animal Protection. Josh's passion for animals is palpable, and he is currently campaigning to get Prop 12 passed in California, a historic piece of animal welfare legislation. Not only would this proposition do away with harmful farming practices, but it would also prohibit the sale of products from operators that still use them throughout California. Seeing as the state is considered the world's fifth largest economy, Josh sees this as one of the most transformative laws for farm animals to date. While Josh's clear focus is on animal advocacy, he is also involved in the plant-based food space. He is a co-founder of Just Foods, formerly known as Hampton Creek, along with Josh Tetrick, and also works within his role at HSUS to help institutions incorporate more plant-based options and ingredients in their menus. In this engaging conversation, I get Josh's rather frank take on the future of factory farming and why he believes plant-based foods play an important role in changing the food system but are not the end-all solution. He also outlines simple things everyone can do to help improve the lives of farmed animals, even if they can't vote on Prop 12. And explains why he has hope for the movement. Josh's job might involve coming face to face with some of the worst forms of animal abuse and cruelty, but he remains one of the most driven and optimistic people I've had the chance to encounter. To learn more about how we can all influence change and get involved to build a better food system, keep listening. Josh Bok, thanks for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Neil, thanks for having me on. Finally. <laughs> it's been way too long. We've been uh, orbiting similar uh, universes but have somehow never met each other. Um, but we finally affixed it today and uh, thank you for
0: hosting us in uh, the HSUS office in Los Angeles. Uh, we are thrilled that you're here and yes, it's been way too long since we finally met. You know, I've been a fan for a very, very long time. I'm so grateful for the work that you all have done. So for me to be part of it today is a big honor, so thank you.
1: Oh no, thank you. The honor is mine because, uh, and you, you know, we're the. this is a mutual appreciation society going on here, but uh, I've heard about you from so many people I know really well, um, that uh, I'm, I'm excited that this is happening finally. And um, there's a lot we can talk about. We're going to try to figure out how to pack in the most amount of um, content within an hour or so. Um, but for, for those, for some reason, if there's someone out there listening to this that doesn't, has not heard of you um, and the work that you've done. Let's start off with how long you've actually been at the Humane Society, because I know it's been
0: almost forever. Yeah, it's been close to forever. It's been about 13 years, so this is my HSUS Bar Mitzvah year. Wow. It was very exciting. You know, the rabbi came, they picked me up on a chair, and they danced around singing songs. It was it was a wonderful celebration. <laughs> Uh, so it's been, a, it's been a wonderful time. Uh, you know, I started HSUS actually as an intern. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was at George Washington University. It was the second school I went to, and I was walking down the street, and I was wearing sneakers and ripped jeans, and I'm sure a t-shirt I haven't washed for many days. <laughs> and I saw a building that said Humane meets the United States, and I thought, you know what? I like animals. Maybe I'll go in to see what I could do to help. And I went into the building, and little did I know, everyone was dressed up in a suit and looking all fancy, and I was thinking, what the heck is going on here? And it turned out this the main of the United States. There, that was where all the lobbyists and attorneys are. Okay, and uh, I was like, "Hey, can I intern?" And fortunately, uh, that was probably before uh, background checks and deep interview <laughs> processes. Because on the spot, they said, "Yeah, let's do it." Wow. So that that's how I started.
1: So you've basically since college, this is the only uh, place you work.
0: You know, from my internship, mm-hmm. I did work about a month at a vegan bakery called Sticky Fingers. <laughs> Uh, I didn't know that. I know you right. that. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's yeah. really good, in fact. Uh, they were very, very nice to hire me uh, I, for many reasons. One is that I did a very poor job. <laughs> uh, I washed dishes so terribly. There was constant complaints uh, from the uh, the bakers in the back. Uh, but I did, I think, an okay job on the uh, the front area of, of the bakery. Um, and after working there, I worked at an organization called Compassion Over mm-hmm. Killing for several years. Uh, there, I worked to Add plant-based foods at restaurants in the dc area we launched the first ever national advertising campaign about factory farming and i did undercover work as well so i worked in factory farms and slaughterhouses mm-hmm. uh and uh from there i went over to the humane southern United states in january 23rd 2005 and, and been here ever since
1: wow that's a that's a 13 years and um a lot has changed in the last 13 years. I mean, think back at uh, 2005, um, I I definitely had no idea um, what was happening in this space. But uh, now we're in a different age, and you are not only Humane Society, of course, you have also founded uh, Just Foods, formerly Hampton Creek. Um, let's, let's talk about that a little bit before we kind of go back into the work you're doing at HSUS right now. Um, How involved are you in Just, and firstly, how did that really come about?
0: Well, when I was uh, working at the Humane Society of the United States, solely focused on corporations, a lot of things came to my mind. So what I would do is work with the largest food companies to reform how they purchase their products. So rather than buying eggs, pork, and veal from caged animals, for these companies to mandate their suppliers to get rid of those practices, You know, our thesis, which I think has been proven to be accurate, is that these big producers aren't going to listen to me or even you now. I I don't know why they won't listen to you, but they won't listen to either of us, probably. No one listens to me. No (laughs) one listens to you. Okay, there you go. And that would include them. Uh, But who they would listen to are the big buyers of the products. And so when they would mandate that they would stop using the practices, they actually would follow through with it. So it was in that realm that I started working with companies to move away from using eggs from cage chickens to switch to cage free, which is a dramatic improvement, not perfect, not utopia, but it's a massive improvement for these animal lives. And I remember leaving, uh, general mills, uh, they're based uh, outside of Minneapolis and it was a wonderful meeting. It was filled with executives. No one disagreed with me at all. A full agreement that we should not confine animals in cages. Yet at the meeting, they said, you know, we are not going to be able to go K-Tree. It's just too expensive. And so I just remember leaving so frustrated thinking, I just had an amazing meeting with good-hearted people who care a lot. And yet they felt constrained by the current system to make actual changes uh, within their supply chain, even a company's biggest general Mills. So I was sitting in the plane on the way home. It was uh, it was in the winter uh, in Minnesota, so you can imagine how cold it was. And there's ice on the wings, and we were stuck there for a little bit on the runway. And I just thought, you know what? What would it look like if I created a company that would produce the same type of ingredients, same type of products General Mills and other companies would use, only they came from plants, not animals? Mm. Uh, so that was where the idea spawned. Uh, I always appreciate that runway in 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 the Minneapolis Saint Paul <laughs> Airport, uh, and and from there uh, we took off.
1: And this was which year was it?
0: That was uh, I would say 2011, if I recall.
1: Wow. Okay. So, um, I mean, uh, I've looked at in the last five years, this space has gone from, when I say this space, I mean the. The, broadly speaking, the good food movement uh, being led by plant-based foods and now clean meat as well. Um, so you were there in that – I mean, not there. You were part of that decision. You were the one who came up with that idea. Uh, how did that turn into what became Hampton Creek in the next few years? Because I know you were friends with Josh uh, Tetrick. Um, so tell me more about that. I mean, how did that – how do you go from an idea – to founding this company that has become one of the pioneers in the plant based. Uh, food tech space, really, in the last few years?
0: Well, I've been dear friends with Josh Hettrick since we were kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wanted to be a professional football player. I wanted to be a professional baseball player.
1: You both have really succeeded. <laughs> Not
0: really. <laughs> yeah, we both failed miserably. Uh, his, uh, he still, thankfully, I guess. Thankfully. There you go. <laughs> miserably and thankfully at the same time. Actually, it's one of those things that at the time you think is the worst thing that happens to your life, but you look back and you're so grateful. Yeah. Uh, so while his knees may still hurt from football and my shoulder certainly still hurts from playing baseball, uh, we have, you tried to move on to do something a lot more important for the world. And so I've known Josh since we were both kids and I knew that he wanted to be part of or start a company that was inherently good for the world, preferably for animals. And he has just a ton of talent. He works so hard. He's a very visionary type of human. So I approached him. I was like, Hey Josh, uh, I have an idea no one has done it yet. There's a real need for this to happen, not just for the world and animals and our health and for the planet, but actually there's a business need within the industry. So I pitched it to him and I still remember this. I talked to him, gave him the scenario and he didn't respond right away. He paused. And if anyone knows Josh Tetrick, he's pretty quick witted mm. and he will, you know, he, moved very quick in responses because his mind goes very fast. And the fact that he paused and thought made me think, uh-oh, I think I got him. <laughs> uh, and so he was on board. Uh, and uh, we started talking to friends of mine in the food industry, uh, those who've been involved in the investment world, and, uh, and just started asking them, do you think this is a good idea? Are we crazy? And so more and more people thought it was a good idea. And so we kind of just went for it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's such an
1: important story to bring up because uh, most things that become companies and then become uh, iconic entities in the long run um, all start off with a a somewhat crazy idea. And it only takes a bunch of people to sit together, turn that idea into into a workable product or a business plan or something, uh, and then just come up with a plan and work on it. It's as simple as that. Um, Most people don't realize that a lot of the companies that were founded in the last five, six years that have done great work came out of um, discussions between people at places like the HSUS uh, or Mercy for Animals or other organizations. People who said, well, we've been fighting for animal rights and welfare for years and years and years. There has to be more that we can do. Um, and of course, you were instrumental in that uh, through the work that you've done at the HSUS. But the thing that comes up when when I hear your story about Just Foods and, and when it was started off and, and the reasons why you thought about it being a good idea, here we are in 2018 now. Uh, there are there's almost every every couple of weeks I hear about a new company launching some innovative new product. Um, you know, if we talk about that at length on this podcast. Uh, ev- nearly every packaged food you can imagine out there now has a plant-based alternative, all companies working on them. Um, there are big investors involved. It's not so weird that people are coming out with plant-based options for eggs or dairy or cheese or, or meat. Uh, even meat industry is involved now. Um, so you've obviously seen... You've had a front row seat um, to witness what has happened in the last few years, but you continue to be at the HSUS. (laughs) So my question for you is, how come in the last few years, after seeing the direct impact that being involved on the supply side of things, being involved with innovating new foods... Watching the change in consumer behavior as well as people cut down on their consumption of animal products and are choosing plant-based slash vegan options, um, how do you continue to do the work that you're doing? And have, how come you haven't been tempted to just go all in and, uh, and
0: be involved in the day-to-day functioning of just foods, for example? Well, I don't know if Just Foods would have me, number one. <laughs> but uh, I don't think they have a choice. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, that, we might have to find that out. Uh, but in all seriousness, you know, I'm just very proud of, of my team at the uh, Farm Animal Protection Team within the Humane Society of the United States. And, and everything that you just talked about, you know, we help drive. That's what gets me still motivated on this. So we drive investors to the startup companies. They have a lot of trust in us. I've worked with them for uh, almost a decade now on investing in new companies that are inherently good for animals, but have a very good business plan and talent that would actually be a good investment simultaneously. On the other side, we work very closely with the founders to then connect them with the investment community. So we work both on the investment side and the founder side to make these connections. So, you know, I think it's tremendous that so many folks have dedicated themselves to individual companies, and I hope they're all massively successful. For us, we found a very good business model for our impact by working with the breadth of this startup industry. Uh, Beyond that, we are connecting these companies to actual buyers of the products. And that's a very unique thing because you can invent anything you want. You can have anything taste really good in a test kitchen, but if no one's going to buy your product, it's not going to have the impact that you want. So we have a very close relationship with many of the largest food corporations on the planet. We're talking about the established companies. You know, the largest food service companies like Compass Group, Aramark, and Sodexo, as just an example. You know, they, they run the dining operations at probably 30,000 colleges, universities, hospitals, K-12 through schools across the country. These are the type of companies that these startups want to sell their product to, Mm. and we can make the trusted connection to them. So um, I'm thrilled that we're still heavily involved in this startup space. We're still working hard to help new companies form. And for the established companies that are out there, we're still working hard to help them get more business with these big clientele.
1: So I get it. I mean, you get to sit above it all in some ways or kind of have a a hand in almost every little... Uh, segment of the market starting with in, what's happening with investment, what's happening with food service, uh, distributors, as well as the companies themselves. Uh, is humane capital still a thing that Do you, you Does the humane society still make investments directly into some of these companies?
0: So, you're right, we have made investments in the past, we invested in Beyond Meat and Veggie Grill, uh, and, and other companies. Uh, our focus. Uh, recently has been more helping these companies beyond the investment side. Mm-hmm. You know, fortunately, I, I just think that there has been a, a major growth of investors in this space that I think that an organization like the Humane of United States, while, you know, it's great that there's any investor at all who was interested, I think there's so many What is needed is to help drive other things that uh, perhaps doesn't exist as much. That's like the connections I discussed earlier that I think is very unique with our team.
1: So let's then talk about what's your focus um, in terms of your team? Where do you fit into this world of advocacy um, campaigns, but also sort of helping out with um, the, the good food movement that's really happening?
0: So a lot of the, uh, the work that we do is in this good food movement, as you say, uh, but to continue down that path, uh, we have three divisions. One focuses strictly on helping plant-based become more mainstream. So how we do it is that we have, you know, more than we've about 20 people who work with major institutions to bring more plant-based meals front and center to their customers Uh, Beyond these institutions, the hospitals, colleges, universities, we work with these major companies on a national scale to start incorporating plant-based meals. So we have professional chefs who work with our team, and they're not just chefs, as in Hey, they worked at a restaurant. These are chefs within the industry who knows how to create plant based meals that can serve, you know, ten thousand people at a time versus one or two people at a time. You know, we have people who, you know, used to run dining operations at colleges and universities. So they actually understand what it's like to start shifting menus around. So we have actual professionals in the industry working for us to change the food industry to focus more on plants. So that's one of the three mm-hmm. divisions. The second one is to work with corporations to reform their practices to abolish the cages and crates within their supply chain. So, as we speak, we have a major campaign regarding McDonald's. Uh, they uh, unfortunately have not followed about a hundred other companies in mandating better treatment of the chickens in their supply chains. So, you know, in short, uh, they still allow e- egregious practices of breeding chickens to grow so big, so fast, they can barely walk by the end of their life. Mm-hmm. They, they cram them in these sheds. Uh, There's no enrichments like perches uh, or hay bales. And at the end of their life, they're killed via Uh, live hanging while they're fully conscious. So that's a very big problem for billions of chickens in this country and across the world. And McDonald's, unfortunately, has been a laggard and we have a big campaign to hopefully persuade them to change their ways. So that's the second division is is to focus on the corporate side to make things less cruel in the supply chain. And finally, the third side is to create laws that reduce the suffering of farm animals. So right now we have what's called Proposition 12 it's the most far-reaching ballot measure this country's history. In fact, if we enact this into law and we win on election day, it would be the most extensive law to protect farm animals in the world. And so that's th- the priority for us on the public policy side.
1: Got it. And so for someone who doesn't know what Prop 12 is, um, why is that so important? Why is it such a game-changing proposition? Well,
0: thank you for asking me about <laughs> Prop 12. So Prop Twelve is a special time that we have to make maybe the biggest difference we've ever made for farm animals. What he would do is not only ensure in California uh, that animals like egg-laying hens, mother pigs, and baby veal calves aren't confined in, in small cages, it would also ensure, and most importantly, ensure that the eggs, pork, and veal sold in the state not come from operators that confine animals in cages. So. If you're a producer and you want to sell in the fifth largest economy in the world, which is California, you can't use these cages and crates. So, you know, when we talked about how suppliers listen to corporations, mm-hmm. they're also going to listen to the fifth largest economy on the planet when it's calling for better conditions. And there's no state in the country, there's no country in the world that has a law that, in sh- that mandates that producers can't confine animals in cages if they're going to supply products and be able to sell them. So th- directly, this is going to affect more than 40 million animals. That's the number of animals, roughly, who lay eggs or produce pork or veal for the California marketplace. Indirectly, because what happens you know, in California often shifts in the entire nation, which it has done on you know, other issues. It has the potential of improving the lives of literally billions of animals. So the time is now to make the change. We have the moment to seize. Uh, and, you know, for me, I've been doing this for quite a while. Uh, I might not make uh, an impact in my life as much as what I and, and our team working on this can do if we pass Proposition 12. Yeah.
1: I mean, I um, what would you say to someone who who is so focused on the fact that Um, we seem to be making progress on uh, changing consumer habits around food. And if you look at any of the recent studies and reports, most Americans are cutting down on their consumption of meat and dairy and eggs. Maybe not eggs, but meat and dairy at least. Um, And plant-based food has never been more popular than before, and it's increasing in popularity as better products come Mm -hmm. into the marketplace. Uh, Where it's almost become... Um, fashionable to just talk about the supply side solutions, like uh, innovative new cheeses and meats and and uh, n- and non dairy milks, and no one really tends to talk much about. Or maybe this is my perspective, but pe- people talk less about improving the conditions of farm animals. For so for so for someone who asks you, well, I guess I'm asking
0: you. So it's you who's asking. Why? Is
1: it, why? Um. Why does this matter if everyone's gonna stop eating meat and dairy and eggs anyway well, that's a very bold statement you, you think
0: that's good. gonna happen right now um so
1: I'm pretending to do really not use my mind right now <laughs> <laughs> uh no why does it matter like why does this still matter Tell me some i, I think yeah. the numbers are really important
0: yeah. yeah i guess i will i will look i will look at it this way. If we can eliminate the worst suffering that goes on Mm. to billions of animals, why don't we? Why allow them to languish in such pain and misery? We owe it to them to do something. You know, I firmly believe we should shift to focus more on plants, just as you do. And and I'm proud of the work of my team who's helped lead the way uh, in, in helping the country start moving in this direction. At the same time, whether... Any of us like it or not, there are going to be billions of animals raised in the foreseeable future for food, most of them living in horrendous situations in factory farms and killed in uh, in barbaric ways in slaughterhouses. So if we have a chance to vastly reduce their suffering, and that's what will happen mm-hmm. when you get rid of these cages and crates where they can't move their whole life, if we have a chance to vastly reduce their suffering, I, I just view this as a moral calling to do so. I mean, I can't imagine looking the in the eyes of an animal, thinking, "You know what? I could make your suffering vastly reduce. I could make your life so much better." But I'm not because I'm going to focus on some hopeful future mm-hmm. that might happen in you know decades and decades from now, when right now we can make the change for these animals.
1: Yeah, and I think also from another perspective, it is crucial that we don't get so caught up in the fact that. The big meat processors are now either investing in clean meat or plant-based meat, and then assume that you know now they're on our side, uh, when they continue to do, to make their money right now from uh, from confining animals and torturing them. So um, what I what I really I think what's changed from from I wouldn't say changed from my perspective, but what's given me a new uh, perspective on the entire animal welfare uh, future of food movement is that maybe the difference for you and others fighting for better conditions uh, for animals in these horrendous factory farms is maybe there's an end in sight, right? Maybe clean meat's gonna come around, and uh, Cargill and Tyson and others are going to shift away from this way of producing meat to something more sustainable, either clean meat or plant-based. And maybe that's happening in the next 15, 30 years, maybe, if you're lucky. Um, So you actually now have a clear mission that in the next 30 years, you continue to keep them accountable, you continue to fight for better conditions for animals, and you don't just sit back and now let them get away with whatever they choose to do while billions, not millions, billions of animals get slaughtered every year.
0: Yeah, well, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And you're right that major food corporations uh, within the supply side like Tyson uh, or Cargill or or Maple Leaf uh, or Purdue and others are, are now looking at the space and some are actually investing in the space. Uh, when I say the space, I mean plant-based mm-hmm. and clean meat. Uh, I think a lot of that is a business decision, uh, if not virtually all of that, which I think is great. I hope that Plant-based and clean meat is a good business decision, and I firmly believe it is. At the same time, we can't just relax, as you said, and think, you know what? Because there's business decisions being made, that there are small investments here and there. And keep in mind, these investments are fairly small compared to how big these corporations are. Because that's happening, there is going to be some rapid change in this world to somehow abolish factory farming in a timely manner where we can ignore the suffering of animals. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just don't see that happening now. Uh, And frankly, I think this stuff goes hand in hand. I I really do. I just don't see the point of that society is going to ignore the plight of animals until someone snaps their fingers like Thanos Mm -hmm. and think, you know what? Now everything's going to change and we're going to focus more on plant-based and clean meat. I see it more as a continuum of making things better. We're going to abolish the worst practices in factory farming, which is taking these poor baby veal calves away from their moms and confine them in a, in a crate they can't turn around for four months. The mama pigs in gestation crates, they can't turn around for four years. As long as we go to high school or college, these mother pigs as is, is smart and inquisitive as our dogs can't turn around for four years. Or these egg laying hens who are in a cage and have less space on a sheet of paper for a year and a half. I don't see us ignoring that. And just hoping for a better future when we can actually eliminate those practices, make things better for those animals while simultaneously keep moving forward on plant-based, keep moving forward on clean meat and let's keep going down that path. Because there's going to be fewer animals raised in factory farms, which I think we all agree is a good thing. And those animals who would be raised would have better lives than they otherwise would be. Mm-hmm.
1: I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, so for someone who's listening to this, did not know what Prop 12 is, whether they live in California or not. If you're in California, how can you help? And if you're not, how can you help?
0: Thank you so much for that question as well. Uh, you really set me up here. Uh, no, well, I actually, you know, I'm. You've
1: convinced me that I think it's <laughs> worth talking about.
0: Fantastic, <laughs> fantastic. You know, I used to, uh, I used to play a uh, ball um, when I was a little kid, and and I, and you, I, I'm just so grateful when people can uh, you know, have a chance to put a ball on a tee for me for a, to <laughs> hit, hit a home run. Uh, so you know, you know, nailed it. To, to, to answer your question, this is a national campaign in California. Uh, for everyone living in California, you have a chance to vote for proposition twelve this election uh, it 's going to be the most important vote you 'll ever have for animals so please vote early voting starts the second week of October. please vote then if you don 't vote then vote during that time you can always vote during the month or at minimum vote on election day November sixth now in California outside the state, anyone can help donate to this campaign you know and all you have to do is go to yes on uh, yeson12ca.com. Again, that's yeson12ca.com. Uh, and going to the top right, there's a donate button. And if you're able to make a donation, be very grateful. And and I'll tell you why. We are facing opposition from animal agribusiness. Uh, one of the, the biggest opponents is this person named Forrest Lucas. He's an oil and agribusiness tycoon. Uh, he is someone who's made his money off of producing products that are pretty bad for the world. Uh, he has made it his mission to try to stop ballot measures from animal protection organizations. And so he has put money against all of our ballot measures over the years, whether they have to do with puppy mills, mm. increased penalties for animal fighting, or factory farming. He's continually put money against it. And he's already committed to to take us on in California as well. He's based in Indiana. And so what I ask anyone listening to this is please, as much as you can put in $10, $20, and if you can put in more, we'd be very, very grateful. Again, it's yes on 12 cacom uh, And I would view this as none of us want animals to suffer anywhere. So if we're all in this for all animals to stop suffering or at least reduce their suffering, then we all together have responsibility to work mm-hmm. on something that will have the biggest impact for farm animals legislatively in history.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I find this really interesting because... On this podcast, I really haven't talked to too many animal activists a- advocates. I mean, I guess I do, but they're all now putting their energy into uh, investing in companies or are farming companies uh, or are working on new companies or you know are, are looking at supply side solutions to the problem in the form of food products. Um, and it's only in the last few months that I've started to really think hard about this question that uh, maybe we're starting to get a little complacent, or maybe that's just the question that's come up in my mind, because we're all about now celebrating the progress, which I am completely about. I'm a very optimistic person. I tend to find the silver lining in the worst things. Um, And the fact that People want to eat more plants. The fact that Tyson and Cargill and Maple Leaf and uh, Purdue and everyone seems to now be saying good things about plants and throwing a few million dollars in that direction. Uh, For them, I say a few million because for them, it's really not much. Um, That maybe no one wants to talk about the problems that still exist in this industry. And animal suffering is one part of it. The environmental toll is the other part of it. I obviously... have co-authored a book about the environmental destruction that's happening with factory farming, that isn't stopping because people are eating more Beyond Burgers or Impossible Burgers. That continues every day because people, most people are still eating meat that comes from these factory farms. Um, And maybe because I don't talk to activists enough, um, I've started to worry that May we're maybe getting uh, taking it easy on them because uh, they seem to be on our side and we seem to – and I say we, I mean the food industry seems to need their buy-in and their support and their money to grow these new startups that are now going to change the food system maybe 10, 15, 20, 30 years down the line. But the problem is the problem still exists. The pollution from this industry still exists. The enormous suffering that happens to animals still exists. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that I'm 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 glad we're having this conversation because it gives me great relief to know that there are some people still fighting for the fact that the industry hasn't really changed.
0: Well, you know, I'm also very optimistic like you. Uh and and I try to like you, try to find a silver lining in everything. And I, I'm always hopeful. That mm-hmm. I I feel like when I wake up in the morning I feel like there's hope. I really, I really do. At the same time, we do have to live in the reality that more animals are being raised and killed for food in the world than ever before. Uh, And there's a lot of progress that we can be very proud about. And I do do think that progress does create hope for a better future. But we can't ignore the reality. And the reality right now is that most egg-laying hens are still in cages. Most mother pigs are still in cages. Most broiler chickens are still genetically engineered in a way that they are, in essence, become these freaks of nature where they do not resemble what a chicken should look like. And the problem is that they're in a constant state of suffering because of it. So those things still exist. And no matter how many startup companies that we're all rooting for um, are founded and and funded, these things are going to exist for years on end. So so what are we going to do about it? Uh, And I am very grateful for for those who have invested in, in startup companies. I'm very grateful for those who invested in the company that I founded okay. uh, at the time called Hampton Creek and now just. But what we can't do is wish the current state of affairs away just by hopes and dreams and and too much uh optimism on certain technologies to happen sooner then I think that would alleviate as much sufferings as we would actually want to happen. And so that's why I do think that we need to have an emphasis on reducing the sufferings of animals, uh, especially on legislative campaigns. And, and one more final point on this is that you know there are a lot of tremendous people who donate to nonprofit organizations. And I work for one, as you know, and, and I'm just so honored that people trust us to create the world that, that we're fighting for. In California, Prop 12 is a political campaign. And so it's not tax deductible. It's a donation, like you're making a donation to a political candidate. Only our candidate are the animals. Mm-hmm. And so it takes a real special person to say, you know what? I, I, it's okay if it's not tax deductible. This is for the animals, and it'd be the biggest impact that will ever happen for animals, at this point in time at least. Legislative-wise, I still want to support it. That's the type of folks that we really need to change the world. And so you have a, a you know a very, I would say intellectual listening base, I'm sure, uh, who care a whole lot about the world. And you, you've drawn them in, into your amazing podcast. So uh, I would ask all of them to just think about that and think, hey, can you all support something as much as you can that will pr- bring the type of change in the world like something like in California is happening?
1: Yeah. You know, I think it's, um, you've been at HSUS, obviously, you said 13 years. How do you keep doing this, this work? I mean, I, I, I frankly wouldn't be able to do it. Uh, why not? Uh, the reason why is it's because I would just be exhausted by the <laughs> lack of progress. Uh, I'm a very results oriented person, as much as I'm an optimist. So, as I can find the silver lining and everything, but then I need to see results. And I'm um, not to say that you haven't seen results. Of course you have. But at the same time, it must often feel like you're banging your head against a wall and that you're up against this. Um, This monstrous, gigantic, billion, trillion dollar industry, actually, uh, that is going to do everything in their power to make sure that they continue to produce cheap meat, dairy and eggs um, and do whatever it takes to keep that cheap for them and from a cost perspective. And also they end up offering it for cheap because of subsidies and other issues we don't need to get into. So the question is like, how is it that you? Um,
0: how do I wake up in the morning?
1: Yeah, how do you wake up in the morning <laughs> and still think this is worth your time versus you know I don't know, uh, working uh, wor- working with Tetrick and the others. Do. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm going back to my first question, no. but well, I want to know what drives you to continue to want to do this work after. Yeah,
0: let, me, let me let me let me make you feel a little bit better, my friend. So in terms of the, in terms of the progress, look look what we've done. You know, when I started entering at HSUS. Uh, there were no states in the country that had any laws banning any confinement systems at all in farm, for farm animals. Now 12 states have some type of law banning all or some of the main confinement systems that go on in factory farming. So you gone from zero to 12. That's really good, including in big agricultural states like Colorado, Michigan, uh, Ohio. If you look at corporations, you know, when I first started interning, no corporation had any policy to get rid of cages and crates in their supply chain. They didn't, they didn't even know there were issues related to them. When I first started working at HSUS and when I would reach out to ask them to talk about farm animal welfare, they had no idea why I was even reaching out. They're like, wait a second, I don't understand. We don't raise animals here at the headquarters. Like, that's not what I'm trying to talk about, sir. Um, which, you know, makes me think, like, I was early 20s. Why would they listen to, to, to me at the time? Um, but That's what it was like back then. Mm -hmm. You know, these are companies who've never even talked about animal welfare before. These are legislators who've never heard of this topic of cages and crates and factory farming. Yet now every major company, every major food company has a policy now to move away from cages and crates and supply chain. So that's a lot of progress that's happened. And I'm not saying there's any correlation because I started interning. <laughs> uh, I, I certainly wasn't the best intern. I could tell you that. Um, but I can tell you during that time frame, we have had a lot of progress in our movement and, and on the plant-based side. You know, when I, I first became vegetarian back in the you know, 1996, if I recall, uh, I mean, it was hard to get anything that was delicious to me at all. I mean, I couldn't find a veggie burger that I thought tastes good. Mm. I mean, the only things were blocks of of tofu that I would use just a scoop of <laughs> of, of ketchup and smear it on it. And then I would just cut it with a knife and just eat it. Like, I, I hate to tell anyone that because if you're looking to eat plant-based, don't do what I just did. But that's what I would resort to back in the 90s. Uh, and yet, look what we have now. Mm-hmm. All, all these amazing products that would make it easy for anybody to start incorporating plant-based foods into their diet. So there has been a lot of progress Uh, You should feel better about that. Uh, It doesn't discount that we have a long way to go, a very, very long way to go. But I think we should be proud of where we're at now. But more importantly, this progress is not self-fulfilling. We have to keep fighting. That's the key. I think that if there's one thing I'm afraid of, and and you kind of implied it in your question, is overconfidence. Mm It's overconfidence in, hey, progress will just see the way. Oh, all these companies are doing this, so they'll just keep on doing. It. All these laws are passed, they'll keep on passing. Oh, these new technologies, they'll keep on evolving, and more companies will just start. It doesn't happen like that. It takes people working hard to make those things happen, and so that's why we have to keep on fighting hard. Martin Luther King talked about, you know, talked about how, you know, the the arc, you know, the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice. Mm-hmm. But the act of, we have to bend it though it doesn't bend naturally we have to do the act of bending so that's what i'm that's what I have to do and that's what my teams have to do that's what I think all of us have to do when we're working to change the world for animals
1: yeah because you know I'm as much as I'm a optimist I do want to bring it back to what the meat industry is doing right now um, at least the the smart ones amongst them by uh, investing or talking about the future of meat to be to be from from plants and or clean meat or other sources it doesn't have to be from an animal uh part of me worries again like maybe why do i worry about these things but part of me worries <laughs> that they're just paying lip service because they don't have anything to lose they, they get a they get a they get a stake uh pun intended <laughs> uh, in in a company like memphis meats or beyond meat mm-hmm. uh they hedge their bets there they continue to make the amount of money that they're making right now by um by as you said raising more animals than ever before and slaughtering them so for them, it's uh, you know who cares? Well, I'll put a few million over here uh, and make a few speeches and say, it, show up <laughs> in a few conferences. Uh, I, you know, I'm just as much are you as skeptical. I'm, as much as I'm skeptical, I like to I I like to call out bullshit when I see it. Sometimes uh-huh. I'm not saying I'm seeing bullshit. Yeah, it's just important to to bring it up so that people don't get deluded into thinking that all the problems are going away because. You can get an Impossible Burger in the white in white Castle. As much as I spend most of my time actually celebrating those things, right? I think it's important to to always always question, uh, even if you're optimistic, um, and to not get complacent.
0: Yeah, well, I I, I agree. It's good to to question. I, it's good. I think it's good to self-reflect as well about what we're personally doing to see if it's effective. I think it's good to challenge companies to do better and, and to call them out if, if they're not. Uh, I, do, I do think with those companies, I think they invest in it not for PR purposes. I really don't. Mm-hmm. I believe they invest in it because I think they do want to diversify. I'm not saying that they believe that you know, how they're raising animals is wrong. I think they, they might not feel that way at all. But I think what they do feel is that it would be bad business if they don't diversify. Because mm-hmm. these are companies, by the way, they are affected by avian influenza. They are yeah. affected by the swine flu. They're affected when people are reducing the meat consumption, even for health reasons. So they're affected by all these externalities. And so, if you're a business person, the smart thing to do is to diversify into something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, I think they're doing it for business purposes. I think you're absolutely right that you know a couple million dollars here and there—that's a rounding error for some of these companies. But I'd rather have a rounding error go to plant-based and clean meat technologies mm-hmm. than go into other things, perhaps. I also see that is contagious. Mm-hmm. Once you see one meat company does it, the next meat company, then the next meat company, and then it goes on more and more and more. So. I do feel like more can be done by those meat companies, but I think that this is what the natural progression does look like are these tiny steps in, seeing what happens, seeing the reaction within the industry, and assuming the early rounding error investment goes well, I see them re-upping, which my understanding is that Tyson has done some re-upping in this,
1: yeah yeah, you know yeah you're 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 probably right, and I do think and you're completely right that this is a business decision. Um, at the end of the day, they 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 don't torture animals because they like it. It just so happens that they're, the 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 products that they produce happen to be living beings, mm-hmm. and um and they're more than happy to do something else if it made them the same or more, more money. I agree with you. It's as simple as that, right? So I I don't think they're bad people, and and I don't think. Um, they're evil. I've, I've never felt that. Um, I just think that's the way we evolved, and that's why I've also spent time talking about how the meat industry has gotten to the point where it has. And uh, it's a mix of um, consumer interest at the end of the day, right? Partly, people wanted cheap meat and and the growth in our population. As, as our population has gone now, 7.6 billion people on this planet, uh, yet in, in America, we all want our food to be cheap. And every time the price of meat went up, people complained. People were really upset. So the government stepped in and said, how do we incentivize farmers to continue doing what they do and earn a living wage? Some would argue that's not happening. Um, And how do we give people what they want? We have to to, uh, turn this industry. I, I wouldn't say turn this industry. We have to bring in automation. Uh, in 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 farming as much as we have in any other industry, and that literally led us down the path where our farms have been converted into factories right now. So it isn't. It didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen because some evil person sitting up there, Tyson or Cargill, said, "Listen, it would be way better if we actually keep chickens in microwaves." Oh no, in a case that's the size of a microwave. No, it just so happened that that's the way you can continue producing that amount of food at the price or the cost that they're producing it. And and that's where we've ended up. Um, and I think we're at a point where you can't keep doing that. You can't keep doing that without having consumers uh, completely buy, boycott your products. You can't keep doing that without running the risk of disease spreading um, because of your products. And you can't keep doing that um, as the population goes to 10 billion in the year twenty fifty. You're going to run out of land, fresh water, and eventually you're not going to make money. So yes, for all those reasons, maybe not animal rights or environmental concerns, but just practical business reality. If you're running a business like uh, industrial animal farming, uh, and you're looking ahead for the long-term viability of your company and your stockholder value, um, you should be worried if you don't invest in plant-based or clean meat.
0: You know, there's a there's a saying, "Hate the sin, but not the sinner," mm-hmm. uh, and and that's how I feel about those involved in factory farming. You know, factory farming wasn't created to torture animals; it was created because you know, after World War II, when we were industrializing as a nation, we thought, "Hey, you know, what would it look like to industrialize our food system as well?" Uh, and then we started shifting that direction and and those farmers who wanted to stay in business would shift in that direction. those who didn 't were undercut and and then their businesses were often uh, destroyed by because of factory farms uh, and that 's how it came about and i think it 's important to view it that way because I think some of the problems can be solved by getting industry to shift, and the way of doing it is working with them in, in many ways, getting them interested in alternatives to raising animals uh, in these factory farms and I think the way of doing that is to demonstrate that, hey, we're all human here. You're probably a good person. You probably care about your family. You probably want to send your kids to a college. You probably are a good neighbor. Let's start in that baseline here. Mm-hmm. And now let's try to find some common ground on something to work on. So I, I bring that up to say that I agree with you, that it, that it, it's not anger towards people. It's anger towards the system that's abusing animals. I think it's a healthier way of viewing, viewing it. On on the next point that you made about it just not being a sustainable business practice, as it was your point, uh, I couldn't agree with that more. The worst business is producing a product that no one's going to buy. And right now, these factory farming practices are so out of step with how everyday consumers feel animals ought to be treated, along with how the environment and rural communities and our health ought to be treated, that there is a ticking clock about how long these products are even going to be able to be sold. an example, if you're an egg producer selling eggs you know f- from chickens confined in these small cages, and there are no major food companies that will even accept your product anymore, that's not a good business model. I don't care how cheap you get your eggs. If no one's going to buy it, none of these big companies are going to buy it, that's a bad business model. So what we have achieved uh, at HSUS and our movement Is that we are making practices, no matter how cheap, not sustainable because they are no longer able to sell those products anywhere. And that's why we're also working to pass laws to make sure those products can't be sold anywhere. So for myriad reasons, these practices are just not going to be around for the long term. And I do feel the hope that you feel as well, that they are going to be abolished eventually, but here's the thing, and this is very important, that If we believe that these practices are gonna end, if we can speed that up by a year, five years, 10 years, we're talking about billions of animals who won't have to suffer in those practices because we sped up the speed of change. That is very important. Imagine another year or two years or five years of billions of animals suffering in this, this egregious type of condition that none of us would ever find appropriate. Well, that is why these campaigns are so important for reforms. That's why it's so important to get more plant-based foods out there. That's why the energy is needed to still make change no matter how much hope we have.
1: Yeah. And so when you think of the the work that you're doing right now in your department of HSUS, um, how, what's the outlook for the next couple of years? I know this year has been a year of transition for HSUS. You've had some big changes, uh, personnel changes. Um, have, I'm sure you've all sat down and said, okay, what are we about now and what are we going to be about in the next few years? Um, what are those conversations like? I mean, how has this year been at the HSUS as um, you look at, you sort of maybe have questioned your role and the future that that this organization and you yourself are going to play here. Um, where have you arrived at right now after
0: that soul searching? <laughs> well, you know what? Uh this campaign in California has been going on for quite some time, almost a year. Uh, and it started in 2017 and it's going to end uh, election day in November. And there's a, an old saying that Bill Clinton uh, used to repeat, which is never look past your next election. Cause it could be your last. <laughs> and so uh, we are, are single focused on this election day because that's going to determine a whole lot. You know, if we win and have the most impactful law for animals in history, it's going to open the door for a lot of opportunities to continue this momentum. Uh, if we lose and the big factory farming interests win the day out on election day, then there is a reflection on what we would have to do. And that's why this is just so vital and we have to remain very focused no matter what uh, situation uh, has occurred. Uh, you know, Regarding uh, the, the treatment of animals within the uh, corporations, this other division that, that, that we have, you know, we've been trying to work with McDonald's, you know, for quite some time on this, and that hasn't changed over the past year. And it was just a couple months ago when we had to launch this campaign. So that, that work is, you know, continuing and, and I'm proud of the attention we're getting on it. And I think hopefully we'll win the day, uh, on that campaign as well. And the plant-based work has been going strong so far and, and, and growing. So I would say on the farm animal front at, you know, at this point, you know, things are, are continuing you know, as strong as ever. And, uh, but you know, you still have to look at what is going to happen in the next months to really make a, a true and honest evaluation of what's going to happen in the future, and so time will tell how successful we are.
1: Yeah, I guess the next few months are really crucial for uh, for uh, many many reasons for the for the work that you've been kind of committed to for, for a while now.
0: Yeah, and now just to, you know, to go beyond that too, it's not just HSU; it's it's our whole movement. I mean, this mm-hmm. Prop Twelve campaign is a coalition effort of groups that. You know, so many people care about, you know, Mercy for Animals, Humane League, ASPCA, Animal Equality, Compassion World Farming, uh, ALDF, Animal Legal Defense Fund. Uh, There are so many groups out there that are working together that you kind of forget who works where. Because you're, we're all on this, like you know what? We're in this for the animals. Mm-hmm. I don't care. I don't care what group. I don't care what your business card says. I don't care who signs your paycheck. We are together as a team to win this for the animals. So, it's not just what's going to happen to HSUS. It's what's going to happen to our movement if we win or lose in this fall.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, for someone listening who is uh, perhaps cur- considering a career change or. Uh, is in college now thinking about what it is that they're going to dedicate the rest of their lives. Because I know we have a lot of young listeners who are either interested in being an entrepreneur or looking to somehow dedicate their time and talents to fighting for uh, better conditions for animals or for reforming our food system or saving the planet. Um, what, What kind of advice would you give them? Of course, it depends on what they're good at, of course, but... Is a career in animal activism still a viable choice? Um, Is that something people should... Why would you... What's your pitch for why someone should still be an activist? uh, And I say an activist. You can be an activist and an entrepreneur, of course. Uh, But I mean, choose the nonprofit world versus go into this uh, exciting, lucrative uh, startup, (laughs) food startup world. And the reason for that question is also because the difference now versus a few years ago is there's a lot more money now suddenly in doing good. <laughs> so, uh part of my concern comes from that is that as everyone's after raising 5 million or 10 or 50 or 60 for their next hot new food company, um you get people now pulled into the fact that you can now be Successful, uh, um, from a from a monetary standpoint at least, uh, and follow your passion. So why not? Just do that versus go and slave away fighting for change in the food system <laughs> by, uh, by, by doing things like fighting for Proposition 12. Uh, so anyway, back to the question. Yeah. Well, what would your advice be for someone who's contemplating all these questions?
0: Yeah, right you now? know, there's the, I would say a couple of things. One is I think, I think it's all necessary. I think that it does take nonprofits to wage campaigns that for-profits can't do mm-hmm. or won't do. For understandable reasons i mean for profits are not going to wage you know, political campaigns to abolish the worst factory farming practices you know they 're not going to wage campaigns against major corporations to, to reform their practices to the change the lives of billions of animals that is going to rely on the nonprofit sector and that 's why I think for the animals it has to remain strong and I hope even stronger at the same time I, I believe very strongly in the free market I think that you know, we have a great number of these startups that are going to make a big difference for animals. I hope they all become billion dollar successes. At the same time, we need a thousand more of them. We need 10,000 more of them. And so, what I would recommend anyone do is see where you're fired up because I, what I have found is that the folks who are most effective are doing things they are most fired up about. So, rather than doing this calculation, mm-hmm. you know, that this very cold calculation, which is, okay, what is the impact I can make in this job versus that job? I appreciate that calculation, by the way. I really do. I, I, I'm, I feel very touched that there are people out there who, who do that. At the same time, we're all human, mm-hmm. and that can't be removed from that calculation. And so if you are fired up to want to work at a startup, go do it. But if you're fired up to want to be a campaigner at an animal protection organization, do that. We need fired up folks. And as long as the job is effective in some realm, we, we it's all needed. And to, to to close on this answer, the bad thing about factory farming is also the good thing. The bad thing is that it is so incredibly terrible that there is so many jobs needed to take it on <laughs> that no matter what you care about, no matter, matter what is your passion or your talent, mm-hmm. you can use it to take on factory farming. And so there is no... Dearth of opportunity for anyone who wants to follow their passion, their talent, and fire to get out there and and start uh, getting in the arena.
1: Yeah, that's a great answer because at the end of the day, if you are, I mean, you can make all the calculations, you can make a spreadsheet and say, you know, I can work for a nonprofit and make uh, X thousand dollars a year, or I can go start my own company and maybe I'll be a billionaire. Those are not the decisions that actually make you do what makes you happy. At the end of the day, when it, the little I've learned in my you know, 15, 16 plus year career right now is that um, you're only happy when you're doing things that make you happy, uh, that make you, as you said, fired up, that make you want to wake up in the morning and put in eight, 10, 12 hours or how many hours of work that you need to put in uh, so that you can have a good night's sleep and you feel good about yourself the next morning when you wake up again. That has nothing to do with money. It has nothing to do with your title. It has nothing to do with the organization you may or may not be part of. It all comes down to what are you actually um, most driven to do. Um, and I think that if people feel that this is the space or the problem that they want to tackle, whether it is uh, um, ending animal cruelty or whether it is making sure we have a sustainable planet or that we have healthy people on the planet uh, years from now. Then find what it is that one thing you can do. And the beauty is, you know, I, I know I've been, have sounded very skeptical at points in this uh, <laughs> conversation, and it's all intentional actually. Um, the beauty is that we're finally here in 2018 at a point where we can even have a conversation like this, right? We can even say there are options. We can even say, do we still need animal advocates? Or, you know, is a, a plant based burger going to solve everything? Or clean meat will solve everything? The fact that we have all of it. Is what is the amazing part about the age we live in right now, where we know that one thing isn't going to fix all of it. And I've said that many times is that the Beyond Burger alone, as great as it is, or the Impossible Burger, is not going to change the food system. It's important, it'll play a crucial role. Clean meat alone is not going to fix all these problems. What's going to fix the problems is is people following their passion, doing the thing that they love to do, whether it's you fighting for Proposition 12, how, as passionately as you have been on this conversation, to someone out there like Josh Tetrick, continuing to build Josh, Just Foods uh, while you stay focused on HSUS, or Uma Valeti at Memphis Meats, or others doing whatever that they're doing out there right now um, to play their role. And together, we're hopefully going to bring about the change that needs to happen.
0: Uh, very well said. Uh, and what I would also add to that is a- is asking all of us to get in the arena. Uh, you know, it's something that Teddy Roosevelt used to talk mm-hmm. about. And w- what I what I mean by that is it's okay to take leaps, give things a shot, fail. It's okay. W- what I think what what is is most needed is for, is for people to think. You know what. I'm just going to go out there and start making choices to actually throw myself in to this arena and I could fail hard. I could be, a, I could be a complete failure. I could take a job that doesn't work out at all, but it, that's okay. That is okay. If you look at any of the success stories that any of us would really appreciate, whether they're business people, civil rights advocates, or people working in other areas of social justice, all of them, hundred percent of them had failed somehow. And many times people failed a whole lot. But the theme beyond the failure being the theme is that it's their interest and their okayness of failing that allowed them to achieve great things. So I think we should all give things a, a shot. And, you know, a, a smart person once told me when I uh, started working at uh, Humane Society, uh, it was said to me, listen, you're going to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Always make mistakes about reaching too high. Always make mistakes about being too aggressive for change. If that happens, so be it. We can, we, can, we can deal with that part. But don't ever make mistakes about being too passive. Don't make mistakes because you reach too low. Don't do that. Make the mistakes the other way. And that's something that, that I've held dear very, very, very long time.
1: Yeah, and I think it comes from being... Um you, being positive and optimistic at the end of the day too. And I, I can't remember who I heard say this. I think it was Elon Musk. I heard him say this recently is that I'd rather be, um, I'm probably going to butcher this, but I'd rather be um, an optimist and wrong than a pessimist and right. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, it's so simple, but there's so much in that one statement is that you can look at things the wrong way all the time, even if it seems like that is most likely that what's going to happen. But who the hell wants to do that? Like I'd rather aim for like the best case scenario and be proven wrong, but I'd still have a much better time uh fighting for something that's worth it versus just sitting back and and saying, "Hey, you know, we're going to lose anyway, so why try?" <laughs>
0: you know what? You're you're you right. Cynicism doesn't win the day. No. It, it 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 doesn't and it doesn't create the change that we want. It doesn't uh, I don't think it makes us the type of people we probably want to be. Uh, I understand being skeptical, mm. and I think that's often very healthy. And I think it it's a, it causes an honest view of situations, which is, is which is important. But once we become cynical, that's when it leads to inaction. That's when it leads to giving up, and that's what I don't accept. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what I would ask everybody just to think about is like, let's look the world the way it is. That's all right. It's pretty bad in many areas. Yes, there have been improvement, but you know there's still a lot of horrendous things going on. But what gives us hope? What can we use our talents, or passion for? And then let's jump. Mm-hmm. Let's go for it. And then we'll, we'll see what happens.
1: Yeah, so speaking of jumps and leaps, let's talk <laughs> about... Um, you know the world that that you want to see in the year 2050 and i always give the year 2050 because i you know it's it's simple we're going to we're all going to look back and say we the work we did amounted to something or we we um we grew old uh trying uh and it didn't work out yeah um so you look ahead 32 years uh, we're going to be 10 billion people on this planet um clean meat hopefully would <laughs> have already been in the market <laughs> by then um, so what's what's your view of the year 2050 if we get it right? If all of us within this, this uh, as I've been saying, good food movement, whether it's uh, people like you who are fighting for change in the factory farming system or others who are coming up with clean meat and plant-based meats and other products, if we succeed in bringing about the change that we all just wake up every morning fighting for, what does that world look to you like in the year 2050?
0: Well, I'll certainly have uh, more gray hair than I do now, though I do have some amount you're at this still, point. You're,
1: see, you're optimistic. You still think you'll have hair. <laughs> that's is, that
0: is, that's a very good point. I, I'm
1: not that optimistic about myself. Uh, you know, I, you, I
0: think you still got it. Think you, you still got it. Um, <laughs> well, I think that if the following happens, I think we've achieved a lot. One is that plant-based, it becomes so mainstream that... It doesn't matter what diner you go to, what fast food place, what grocery store, anywhere in the country. I don't care whether you are in Berkeley, California or rural Alabama, you're going to find a variety of delicious plant-based foods that everyday people are buying that it's normal to bring it home and to fill your shopping cart with. Two, I would hope that clean meat at that point in time does also become normalized in terms of not just acceptance, which I think overall it's going to be accepted. I'm not as concerned about that, but in terms of cost differential. Because once you can produce actual meat at the same cost as raising animals in factory farms, then I see a disruption. And I th- and I think that if we win, that's what it's going to look like, is affordable, clean meat, meat that didn't come from animals. And that is what is going to be sold at bars and restaurants. It's not even going to have labels on it. It's just going to say, you know, chicken nuggets. It's going to say sausage and hot dogs. It's not even going to have to say any type of descriptor. It's just inherently what it is. And because when the default is the right thing to do, that's when you win. That's when you win. Now, on terms of farm animals, I do believe that we are going to abolish what we see as factory farming by that year. And I, I think that farm animals will still exist. They're going to be still raised and killed for food. But I don't believe that humanity is going to accept the conditions that are uh, that are normalized in, in current-day uh, industrial operations. Uh, and so I don't see farm animals being raised in cages and crates. I don't see these chickens in the meat industry, you know, blowing up like, like they're, you know, unfortunate monsters because of what we've done to them genetically. Uh, I see, uh, slaughter systems that hopefully are dramatically different to ensure that animals don't suffer at all. Uh, so if we're able to achieve all of that, then when you and I do, uh, the, the podcast in 2050 sitting right here, uh, I think we'll be pretty happy together.
1: Yeah. And and yeah, if if um, the artificial intelligence that exists then allows us to do this, so <laughs> that's we we'll, we will need a whole separate hour to discuss the impact of AI
0: on uh, our food system, but uh, it's coming. Absolutely, it will be. I mean, you might have artificial intelligence running these clean meat operations.
1: Yeah, and, and I'm pretty sure by then we will realize that only only a barbaric society would do what we do to animals today. So um, I want to give you a chance to give one last plug for Prop 12 because I know it, it is very important. Um, so for those that have, that didn't pay attention
0: before, what's the website they can go to and uh, what's the simple thing they can do to help? Yes, on prop12ca.com. That's yes on prop12ca.com. Top right corner, hit donate. uh, And we'd be just tremendously appreciative if folks are able to donate to help us fight back against the big Midwest agribusiness interests that are fighting against us.
1: Thank you, Josh. This has been uh, tremendously insightful and entertaining.
0: No, this has been fantastic. (laughs) Let's do it again. We will. 2050. No, let's not (laughs) wait that long. All right. Thank you, Josh. Thanks, Neil.
1: You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Neil Zacharias.